Okay, everybody, welcome. My name is Johan Hermstad. I'm the director of the Norwegian Council for Africa. And I'd like to say uh, welcome to all, all of you to the first Africa No of 2018. This monthly, this series of monthly seminars on uh, various African political topics, economic issues, uh, countries, uh, and so on. Uh, this takes place each and every last Wednesday of the month, so, so welcome back. Uh, just let's start out with saying welcome back. Um, in 2012, Fellas or the Norwegian Council for Africa, released a book about Africa's 99%, uh, about the ones who were being left behind uh, throughout the continent, uh, in, with regards to economic rights, with regards to uh, political and civil rights, and giving their voice to protest uh, throughout. But in few other countries uh, in Africa, um, we had such a symbolic movement and important movement uh, to other countries, giving it inspiration, as in Tunisia, uh, with the Tunisian Jasmine Revolution, and not least the political settlements, settlements in the wake of this revolution, the settlements were lauded with a Nobel Peace Prize, as we all uh, remember, but seven years have passed since that, and we see uh, Tunisia with a frail democracy and weak economic performance, uh, and we also see the re-emergence of protest. And the, the question that we really asked this evening is, what now? Um, I'm not going to say much more because uh, I'm very pleased we have an extremely knowledgeable panel to take us into this uh, discussion, and not least uh, uh, our moderator of this evening. Uh, I'd like to, to, to introduce Maria Glenna, um, presently a human rights advisor at Stephanus uh, Alliansen. Um, she's written her master, master thesis on on the reform po um, on the po uh, police system or reform in Tunisia. You can say more about that if you want. Um, and you've been living there throughout uh, from 19, from 2013 to 15. Um, welcome, uh, Maria, and uh, I hope you all enjoy the discussion. setting up the notorious computer. All right, uh, so my thesis was on um, what, uh, what factors led to the cons consolidation of peace in Tunisia, which is of course very interesting. like I was relieved of introducing the topic, um, more or less. Uh, let's see, you basically, uh, you basically know the situation. Um, we had an unprecedented situation in Tunisia in 2011, um, where you had 
widespread protests that eventually um, uh, were able to, to oust uh, the head of state in Tunisia, the first in the region. Um, and then, seven years after, we see we, we had a we had a, a situation that that could um, that that had the potential to to lead to enormous changes in Tunisia and in the region. And then seven years later, we see that the country struggles um, with fragile democratic institutions, corruption, uh, security challenges, and so on. So we're questioning what happened, what now. Um, and for our panel to answer this question, these questions, we have Lisa Maria Mossadbog Selvik, who is a PhD scholar at the University of Bergen. Uh, she wrote her master thesis on constitutionalism in Tunisia and did her field work there as well. Uh, we also have with us Joachim Nahem, uh, who is a senior advisor at the Norwegian Institute of Foreign Affairs, also called NUPI. Uh, he was uh, previously a senior advisor at UNDP in Tunisia uh, from 2012 to 2013. And he has also contributed to a book called External Powers and the Arab Spring. And with us from Tunisia, all the way, uh, we have Ziad Alhani, who is a Tunisian uh, journalist and blogger. He was previously the leader of the National uh, Union of the Tunisian Journalists. Uh, and has written and worked uh, extensively uh, for freedom of speech in the country. Please welcome. So if we could just start with uh, taking stock of the situation now. Uh, maybe everyone is not completely up to date on what the situation is in Tunisia now. Uh, would you like to start, uh, Mrs. Yad? First of all, I'm uh, grateful for this uh, invitation and uh, for the uh, opportunity you gave to me to speak about the situation in uh, my country in, uh, in uh, Tunisia. Uh, uh, please, I, I will speak in, uh, in, in Arabic and my uh, friend will uh, translate to, uh, to English. Uh, وأنا تجول مساء أمس واليوم في شوارع أوسلو أنه توجد ورشات كثيرة للعمل وأتوقع أن أصحاب المحلات وأصحاب المتاجر حيث توجد هذه الورشات يشعرون بانزعاج كبير ومنهم ربما من تمنى لو أن هذه الورشات لم تقع لأنها تعطل أعماله لكن عندما تنتهي هذه الورشات ويتغير وجه ذلك المكان فسينسى الجميع كل ذلك الانزعاج وسيفرح بالوجه الجديد والأكثر فائدة التي أصبح عليها الشارع 
Yes, hi everyone. Um, I'll try to do my best. Um, uh, uh, while I was walking uh, in uh, uh, Oslo uh, streets, uh, I discovered that there are many, um, let's say, craft craftsmen or tents or people standing outside uh, promoting their, uh, their work. Uh, the impression that I had is that it's a kind of a chaotic system. Uh, what are these people doing there? And uh, so they, uh, I had a different image. But uh, I thought that once those people uh, go back home, um, uh, like the situation uh, go back to normal. Um, and this is, I think, a description of the situation in Tunisia. هناك تغيير وأمل جديد انبعث في تونس وهذا التغيير يمر بفترات صعبة لكن نحن واثقون أن بالنتيجة لما تنتهي عملية التغيير لما ينتهي مسار البناء الديمقراطي في تونس فأن الوضع سيكون أفضل بكثير ليس فقط بالنسبة لتونس وأنما بالنسبة لكامل المنطقة لما يمكن أن يسببه هذا التغيير من نتائج إيجابية um, th there has been a change and uh, there's still a hope uh, once uh, the situation uh, in Tunisia uh, uh, get more st stabilized and this will probably will benefit uh, Tunisia uh, as a whole country uh, not only but also uh, uh, the surrounding countries and uh, those that uh, the countries that have uh, interest uh, direct or indirect uh, with Tunisia but um, I'm sorry uh, what about the situation now? Uh, what would you say the situation is at now, at this point? Okay, okay. And I, I, I understand. Uh, I will not say that we are in a block of transition. But, uh, okay. Uh, but we have many difficulties. And uh, the main difficulties are of uh, economic order. Uh, the second uh, problem maybe uh, is the weakness is uh, the weakness of the state authority. Uh, uh, of, 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 the, of the government uh, action to face these uh, problems. Uh, we will have local elections in the next uh, May, uh, but we think that with these uh, elections, many things will change because we'll have new actors in the political uh, sphere. Uh, uh, and maybe this will affect the uh, political uh, uh, the political uh, scene, and maybe it will be the beginning of giving answers to the real problems of the country. So what I hear, I'm hearing from you is the problem is government performance. Do you do you have any comments to that? You okay? Thanks. Good evening. Um, no, I, I think <coughs> the situation in, in Tunisia, um, it has, it's like this, that 
Tunisia receives international attention either when something you know great happens, like the revolution and uh, uh, you know uh, a Nobel Peace Prize, or when there are protests or violence that goes to a certain level that it sort of gets international attention. So now recently, when you had new protests uh, which coincided with. Uh, the seventh year um, uh, with anniversary, and, and each year there are sort of protests around uh, January. Um, there was international attention uh, again. But the situation is that it's, it's been like this for a long time uh, since the revolution, that there's sort of tension, and uh, tension that has to do with dissatisfaction with government performance. It has to do with slowness of uh, the transition process. But also, as you said, the economic situation. Things have not improved. Um, and this is the main thing, is that for the average Tunisian, the situation in many ways has gotten worse. Um, so ironically, this, the, the factors that led to the revolution in the first place, that is uh, a lack of jobs for young people, a sense of, of sort of apathy. If you didn't have connections, you couldn't get a job or you couldn't uh, get social goods, corruption, poor government performance all these things that led to the revolution are very much still present in Tunisia. Uh, so I would say on the one hand, you know, it succeeded tremendously and we should really not underestimate the great democratic achievements, but when it comes to sort of everyday life or the day after the revolution, yeah. a sort of, uh, to use the Norwegian expression, mandag, the day after uh, something great like this, uh, it's much harder. And, and I think this has to do both with that, you know, the, the performance of the government, uh, what has happened has not been totally competent, but I also think there have been unrealistic expectations. I think the Tunisian people, I think the international community, I think everyone had unrealistic expectations for Tunisia after the revolution. Uh, the problems that Tunisia is facing now have not, were not created with the revolution. They've been there for a long time. They were just not visible. You know, the Ben Ali semi-authoritarian regime was able to sort of keep a lot of these things hidden, including economic data the situation was actually not as good as uh, was um, uh, as it seemed when it came to economic growth, when it came to manufacturing, and all of these things have sort of been hidden uh, factors. So what you're what you're seeing now is kind of a, a discontent that, in many ways, has been brewing for for years, for decades, but particularly after the revolution, because now expectations, and also I have to remember that people can voice their opinion, people can do things and say things which you didn't say 10 years back or 15 years back during the Ben Ali revolution. So yes, in one way it highlights a dire economic situation and uh, the, uh, the, the lack of reform, but it is also uh, a strength of its democracy that it's allowed to protest and highlight these issues. Can I give you some yes. statistics? Please. Donc je vais parler d'une enquête euh, d'opinion euh, publique, euh, d'une enquête sur l'opinion publique des Tunisiens. Cette euh, enquête a été réalisée euh, pour l'International Republican Institute. Elle est parue au mois de décembre dernier. Uh, <coughs> I will shortly talk about the survey that uh, uh, has been made uh, uh, mainly for the... Uh, uh, Yeah, International Republican Institute, yes. 
De December. December uh, 2000, yes, L last month. So it's very uh, recent. So asking people about uh, the major problems they are facing. Between 41 and 46% mentioned the economic problems. Between 13 and 20, they speak about the infrastructure. Infrastructures. Between 14 and 17, the problems are the uh, environmental uh, issues. Between 8 and 11, corruption. And only between 4 and 7%, terrorism. So these are the main concerns of the Tunisians. Asking them what do they think uh, about their situations uh, in the next year, in 2018. 6% said that they are sure that uh, it will be better. 31% uh, they think that it will be a little bit better. 25% said that it will remain the same. 80% said that maybe it will be worst. And 12% uh, said it will be worst. Asking them about democracy prosperity here prosperity asking them about democracy and prosperity 21% of them said that democracy is the most important thing for them but 41% said that prosperity is the most important thing for them about the current political regime 9% say that we are living in a strong democracy, in a complete democracy. Uh, 17% said that it's, press, it's almost uh, an almost democracy. 39% uh, say that it's an imperfect democracy. And 31% said that we are not living in a democracy, mainly during this, uh, of the cause of Al-Fawda. The, the chaos, yeah. About the performance of the government, 3% say that it's very good. 36% say that it's almost good. 22% say that it's almost bad, and 35% say that it's very bad. About, uh, they, they were asked about uh, institutions and uh, power. Uh, uh, for the ministries, 
uh, 3% said that they are useful, 6% uh, say that they are enough uh, good, uh, enough efficient, 17% uh, says that uh, they are uh, a, li a little bit efficient, and 67% said that they are uh, not doing anything. And for the parliament, only 4% said, uh, said that they are uh, doing well, 6% uh, uh, almost uh, well, 11% uh, 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 very little, and 73% uh, say that they are not doing anything. And the last, and the last question, uh, what do you think should be the priority uh, of the government for youth? 70% said employment, 8% said facilitating uh, the creation of uh, entreprise, of, of, of businesses, 8% reform of education, and 3% uh, encouraging youth to participate to uh, the uh, political uh, sphere. So the Tunisians are basically dissatisfied with uh, with their economic situation, with the security, but first and foremost, the, the lack of jobs and, and the economic situation. Yes. So what are, this goes to all of you, what are the reasons why um, for, for this um, uh, development in the economic, uh, in the Tunisian economy? Um, hello. <laughs> so for me, um, so I think you uh, touched upon something very important, which is expectations uh, of the revolution. And I think um, w one one aspect of this is that the revolutionary spirit, uh, in a way, got hijacked by by a political high game. Like after the after the revolution, like the people's people's uprising, uh, you needed a new constitutional order, or at least that was called for, a new constitutional order in Tunisia. You had to have a new political settlement. Uh, so suddenly the process was not only about what the people wanted, uh, which initially was, uh, yeah, as you say, more employment, uh, better economic conditions, um, but it was also about uh, the regime um, and who should steer the country and how. Um, and I think change takes time when you want to establish a new democratic order, that takes time. Uh, I think it would have been easier for people to, to be satisfied if they saw some concrete economic uh, improvements um, in Tunisia. Um, and maybe yeah, disillusionment with the whole uh, revolutionary project uh, when it came to yeah, establishing a new democratic order. And just for instance, uh, the what you mentioned, uh, the dis dissatisfaction with the parliament, uh, this was also a problem for the constitutional, uh, like the constituent assembly, those who wrote the constitution. This was supposed to take one year. Like that was the envisaged project. This process took three. So you can imagine that tensions got high, people got frustrated, uh, both inside and outside of the parliament. Uh, and, and another thing I think you touched upon, which is very important, was that you know the problems were there before the revolutions, and they have been there 
after. So maybe the, the best question is not really what happened, but what did not. Just on that point, I mean, this, this is the kind of the downside to democracy or the democratization is once you're in government, you own it. You own the problem in a very different way than if you were a semi-authoritarian authoritarian leader or uh, if you were in opposition. The problem is that, you know, there have been something like eight or nine governments since the revolution. Um, it's been relatively stable, you know, the elections and transfer of power, all of that has worked very well, but there have been... Uh, numerous governments that uh, essentially had to uh, resign because of the security situation or because of protests or dissatisfaction with the economy. The thing is that it's, it's been rather unstable when it comes to sort of day-to-day -day governing and having a clear idea of where they want to go with uh, more short and medium-term economic reform. Uh, so this has led to that, you know, there's sort of governments come and go, uh, they own the problem, they also contribute to what are unrealistic expectations. The government now, uh, which has been facing a lot of criticism for measures they put in place recently, austerity measures, that is, uh, taking away um, some of the social welfare goods, they are raising taxes, they're, they're doing kind of what... In many, you know, a lot of people are blaming the IMF and saying you're following the, the sort of IMF recipe uh, for restructuring your economy. That is, you have to cut the, the public wage bill, cut down public expenditure. You have to, at the same time, raise taxes or broaden the tax base, as they call it. Uh, you have to do all of these sort of things that come along with um, economic reform uh, as prescribed by the, the Bretton Woods system, IMF and the World Bank. So they've been trying to follow this, but then they're saying, you know, just hold on a little bit, and then next year, and then next year, 2020, we'll have 7% economic growth in Tunisia. And they've been saying this for a long time. So they're sort of doing half-hearted reforms because the protests and other things means that they're not actually able to follow through with some of the reforms, and they're not getting any of the benefits that these painful reforms are supposedly going to lead to. Um, so if you could say you know, to people, it's going to be bad for two, three years. You have to expect high unemployment. You have to understand that we have to cut down on public expenditure. But in a few years, you will get something better. The problem is it's been seven years, and basically growth has been lagging, while the rest of the, the world, if you like, has uh, recovered from the financial crisis of 2008. Almost every country, especially an emerging country like uh, uh, Tunisia with a relatively young population should have much higher economic growth. Uh, it has many factors that uh, a highly educated uh, population, uh, its coastal areas, in one way it's quite well developed, uh, at least on the industrially on some of the coastal areas. It's had a successful manufacturing sector, has some natural resources in phosphate and other things. This should lead to much higher economic growth, but you know, you've had actually negative growth or barely any growth, uh, and unemployment remains extremely high. Officially, it's 15%, I believe, for adults, 30% for uh, young people. In fact, it's much higher, uh, and this is sort of, these were some of the seeds of the revolution as well, is that you had young people, educated people, who couldn't find work. They felt the only way to find something was if you had a connection, or there was a sort of jobs and uh, other goods were reserved for a small part of the population. This situation continues. So I think, you know, economically, um, it's hard to be optimistic. Uh, Tunisia has put itself in a difficult position also because they've borrowed money, and a lot of the budget now actually goes to service debt. Uh, 
they owe France 1.6 billion dollars. Uh, the French president uh, Macron is visiting Tunisia this week, yes. uh, and like other foreign leaders, they come and they speak about you know in Tunis today, and you know they're speaking about you know we're going to do these, bring businesses, and we're going to do trade negotiations. So all of these things are happening, but it doesn't actually lead to much. Again, it's a sort of there's a lot of rhetoric about supporting Tunisia, about wanting to to do things, the government. Uh, but in fact, there's very little happening. And this, of course, leads to disillusionment, uh, cynicism, and dissatisfaction uh, at the, the local level. I've just, from having been to Tunisia the past, well, actually t 10, 12 years, at least since the revolution, you kind of sense less, if not optimism, but people become a little bit more cynical. They're not really expecting that much from the, the government. Um, but at the same time, I think, and maybe your, your numbers indicate that, that there's still a, a strong support for democracy, even if it's imperfect. Yes. And I would point out that, you know, we all live somehow in imperfect democracies. It's not a, an end, it's a sort of process and means, and we've seen some of the most well-established democracies struggle with some very uh, fundamental democratic challenges. But I think this is sort of, if we're going to describe Tunisia as a glass half full or half empty, I'm, I'm optimistic when it comes to the democratic transition in that it's half full, in that people uh, really believe in democratic change, uh, and they're not willing to sort of throw away their democratic gains for short-term prosperity if some strong leader or, or semi-authoritarian person comes and says, listen, you know, I will fix everything. Uh, so I, I think the sort of the ethos and the, the core of Tunisian democracy is still very much there despite all of the economic problems. En fait, nous sommes maintenant au, au neuvième gouvernement depuis euh, donc le changement du 14 janvier euh, 2011. We, we have the, the ninth uh, transition government, not transition anymore, uh, since the, the revolution happened. Uh, et si ça démontre quelque chose, ça démontre l'instabilité du système politique en Tunisie. And this has demonstrated the, uh, how the uh, political system is uh, fragile uh, a lot and unstable in Tunisia. Le problème qui se pose aujourd'hui en Tunisie, c'est que les Tunisiens n'ont pas confiance aux politiciens. Et d'ailleurs, vous l'avez vu, lorsqu'on a parlé au sondage, qui n'ont pas fini confiance essentiellement au Parlement, c'est-à-dire à leurs représentants qui doivent prendre des décisions en leur nom. The main uh, issue was uh, uh, how to build the trust between Tunisians and, and uh, the gov government. And uh, uh, most of people, they, um, uh, they do not uh, trust the decisions uh, the government has been taking so long. Uh, après les élections de 2014, il y a eu une lueur d'espoir. Nous avons deux grands partis qui ont une grande représentativité dans la société tunisienne et dans la sphère politique tunisienne, et ils avaient tous les atouts pour prendre les décisions nécessaires pour remettre le pays sur, euh, sur euh, pied, et les, les gens étaient convaincus qu'il fallait faire des euh, sacrifices, et ils voulaient vraiment, ils, ils, ils étaient prêts à y euh, participer et à euh, sacrifier. After 2014, there, uh, there has been two, um, uh, a coalition of two, uh, two, 
Yeah, two, two, two parties, uh, two political parties in the, in the power um, that uh, they could have worked uh, well together uh, as both of them were well represented by the population. Um, and uh, at that time, people um, gave them um, uh, maybe um, um, uh, or hoped a lot that uh, they will achieve a lot. Um, and uh, unfortunately, this uh, this has not happened uh, after seven seven years. I'm speaking here about the uh, party Al-Nahda, the Islamic party Al-Nahda, who is now moving to uh, a conservative uh, party, more than uh, a religious uh, party. And I'm speaking about the party Nidatuns, the party of the president, Al-Bajif Nikaid Al-Sibsi, who is mainly representing the former regime, but also uh, many of those who are frankly, against Al-Nada and those who are defending uh, the model of a liberal uh, and open society. Oh, sorry. Voilà. Mais malheureusement, Les problèmes au sein du parti Nida Tounes, le parti du président Fini Béji Khaïd Sebsi, et le fait qu'il n'y ait pas de démocratie interne à l'intérieur de euh, ce parti-là, et euh, ça a poussé à l'effritement, plus ou moins, de ce euh, parti. Et depuis, donc, on n'a plus euh, les deux grandes forces qui, avec leur alliance, pouvaient affronter les euh, défis. Donc, euh, nous sommes entrés donc, dans une phase euh, qui, vraiment, politiquement, ne peut pas donner la stabilité, ne peut pas donner euh, la force à l'action du gouvernement. Encore plus, cette dernière période, et puisque nous allons vers de nouvelles euh, élections euh, locales, euh, les élections municipales, on voit maintenant que tout le monde ne, ne, ne donne pas des programmes, ces programmes pour la Tunisie, mais on essaie de se distinguer, non pas par ces programmes, mais de se distinguer par rapport au programme de, euh, du parti Andrata. C'est-à-dire, on est entré dans la réaction et non pas dans la proposition. <laughs> I think I'll, I'll start from the end and go back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so we were uh, at the, the beginning, the, the, there were two, uh, so the political par parties and the government, they were balanced uh, between Nahda and uh, Nida Tunis. Uh, unfortunately, inside uh, Nida Tunis, um, uh, the people, they were not uh, democratic and uh, there has been um, a lot of problems inside uh, this party uh, that has led to um, I think, uh, uh, yeah, a division uh, in, uh, internally, and that division created an unbalanced situation after that uh, between uh, uh, Nahda as a still uh, uh, one uh, solid uh, uh, party and Nida Tunis, which has been uh, divided into, uh, so there were, there were more conflicts. And this uh, has uh, unfortunately hasn't helped uh, the situation to, to get better and uh, uh, to get improved and uh, the communication was uh, was uh, very challenging i think our, our tunisian <coughs> colleague here touches on something really important that is sometimes not 
fully understood or appreciated, at least from a, a sort of democracy transition perspective that, that researchers uh, sometimes look for, is that and what makes Tunisia unique. So what was mentioned is that you have these two political parties, the two main parties, Anada and Nida, uh, Tunis. Anada was, uh, won the first elections, had a rather unsuccessful tenure of that uh, government, but uh, also did something very interesting and responsible, I would say, in that they didn't launch a presidential candidate for the next elections, and Nida Tunis won, and now you, you can have a coalition government. So at the outset, they've done something very smart, which was a big mistake in the other Arab Spring countries and other transition countries, is that they said, rather than a sort of winner-takes-all, because this has been the biggest problem in other democratic transitions, is that the winning party, and you can look no further than to, to Egypt and the Muslim Brotherhood, is that they take it as sort of absolute power uh, and don't realize that they are representing a larger movement and yes. transition other interests, uh, and democracy does not mean winner-takes-it-all. Uh, Tunisia actually did something very smart then, in that the two biggest parties went together and said, we'll, we'll do a coalition here. The challenge is that this, this coalition, so politically smart, democratically smart, yes, but technically, and from a sort of technocratic perspective, this has not translated into good reform. It has not translated into change, uh, or tangible outcomes for the, the population. Right. And, well, that, that I think is a, a bigger question, but the, the, the challenge to sort of make it simple, uh, there is this expression from the, the, the US elections many years back where why Bill Clinton won the elections and why uh, Bush lost, and they said, it's the economy, stupid, right? So it comes down to, it's the economy. What can you actually do changing people's lives? So we can speak very highly of this smart move of coalition, democratically, uh, wise, uh, they're doing everything correct politically, but they're not able to sort of translate this into uh, change. I think it has a lot to do with governance and culture. It doesn't come overnight to sort of all of a sudden reform your public administration, to understand your responsibilities in a democracy at the local government level, at the public administration. It's a change of mentality. It's a change of doing business. Uh, my experience working with, with government and, and other stakeholders in Tunisia is that it's sort of the ancien regime, the old way of doing things still very much exists. Yeah. So the bureaucracy is still old. The administration is still old. The way of doing things is still old. There was no revolution uh, when it came to culture. There was no revolution when it came to sort of the way you do business. There was no revolution in terms of allowing young entrepreneurs or allowing a new mentality, a young population to sort of have access and do things differently. It's still very much an old way of doing things. Uh, so the political system has changed, yes, and very successfully, uh, but, but all this remains very entrenched. And just one final point on the economy, because I think you know, we can blame the Tunisian government, or we can say you did this wrong, you did that wrong. Tunisia has also been very unlucky. You have to remember that from 2011, there are external factors that did not play to Tunisia's advantage. One, in the region, it's neighboring countries, <coughs> Libya, obviously with the, the, the civil conflict there. Uh, it's not that well known that Tunisia hosts, what, 500,000, you know, many thousand Libyan refugees. Uh, uh, many of them who are well off, middle class, but what that's led to is that things have gotten more expensive, there's sort of less housing, uh, there's sort of been an influx of people which has made everyday life in one way more difficult for, for Tunisians. Prices has gone up, especially in, in Tunis. Uh, but another thing is Algeria, and with the plummeting uh, oil price, Algeria, which was one of the most important trading partners and could buy things from Tunisia, all of a sudden they had, their economy was struggling. Uh, the, the oil price also you know, fell, and Tunisia was actually been a petroleum exporter. Now it's all of a sudden a net importer. 
its petroleum sector is in shambles. Um, a lot of its manufacturing is not what it used to be. So all of these sort of factors, either commodity prices or uh, regional turbulence, um, has had a negative impact uh, on Tunisia. And then obviously the terrorist attacks and for tourism and for others you know, coming to Tunisia, that, that has not played to its favor. So we should keep that in mind as well, not blame everything on, on this government. That's Actually, we're going to get into the regional concerns a little bit later, but uh, Ms. Maria has a comment. Yes, I just want to, uh, to pick up on some things that you were saying here. Uh, for one, I, I just want to say that sometimes we have this uh, way of thinking about democracy as some, uh, something like that's been introduced, uh, and then we evaluate how the democratic uh, exercise is going according to how we think it should be going. <laughs> and I think uh, I just want to flag that... Uh, well, Tunisia has its own model. Uh, we talk a lot about the, the consensus uh, tradition in Tunisia. Like we, we say that the, the Tunisian model of consensus democracy. Uh, this is not something entirely new, as I understood. It's like in the political scene of Tunisia, they, they have this tradition of national dialogue, of national, like, and, and the, yes, and the Nida Tunis party and, and the, 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 this coalition, they call it national unity government. And I think this is something very important for the political landscape. So we might say that it might not be the most efficient when it comes to um, policy implication or making laws that are very concrete, but I think it is very important for this uh, reconciliation of the political landscape in Tunisia. Because we mustn't forget that Enakta uh, was a party that was banned until the 2011 yes. uprisings. Uh, which also was probably why they got this huge surge of, uh, of pop popularity, pop pop public pop popularity. <laughs> um, so, so this this uh, national government and the national unity is uh, is very symbolic in that regard. Um, however, uh, um, yeah. Ho however, as, as I said before as well, that the revolution has also, in some sense, become this like elite settlement uh, that, 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 that politicians need to reconcile with each other as well. I think sometimes we, uh, as uh, political scientists, we forget, we forget the, the personalization of politics, that that's, uh, conflicts or political conflicts can be very personal as well. Um, yes, cause, because a lot of the leading uh, figures in the Tunisian politics has actually been imprisoned and tortured for many years and their families as well, right, Mrs. Ziad? Sorry? The the mm, uh, sorry many of the or several of the main figures yes. on the political Tunisian political yes. scene yeah. has been imprisoned for yes. many years. Imprisoned or uh, was in exile. When I say was in exile, that means simply that uh, they are cut from the reality of uh, Tunisia of uh, this uh, Tunisian uh, society, and this is a real uh, a problem. Uh, but please, I want to, to, to mention something. Many are speaking about Arab Spring. I don't believe in the existence of an Arab Spring. For me, there is a Tunisian Spring. If it will, if it will succeed, it can then be positively uh, influence on the environment and then create a process of an Arab Spring. You follow what's happening in Libya. You follow what's happening in Egypt. The military become more powerful 
Then it was under Funi Hosni Mubarak. You follow Funi what's happening in Yemen. It will be divided now after this internal Funi war. You followed what happened in Syria. You followed what happened in Bahrain, in Al Manama Square. When the, uh, uh, the, when the uh, Saudi army entered to be there to impeach a revolution in, in, uh, in Bahrain. So we have a Tunisian spring. The idea of consensus is very important in Tunisia. The idea of, of national uh, government is very, very important. The president of the Republic of called for an agreement, the uh, document of Carthage, in which he called for the national front unity, and which created the uh, national front government. But the problem is that they don't have the power to take the hard decisions. About 50, about the health of our economy is informal. 50, the, the, the half is informal. And they are finding difficulties to make it uh, legal. Now you, you uh, for for uh, but for for example, we know very well that uh, the most corrupted businessmen from in Tunisia are protected by the main parties, are protected by Nava, but mainly are protected by Nidhe Fenty Tunis. Only, only two days ago, the Minister of uh, uh, Tourism, uh, which is a leader member of another uh, party, Salma Lumi, and which is one of the most respectful uh, politicians in Tunisia, said publicly that Nidhe Tunis today is uh, uh, the refuge of those who have uh, heavy, heavy files of, of, of corruption. That's the question. Today, we have now nearly five or six days, the production of phosphate is stopped. Is stopped. And no one can do anything for that. You know why? Because of uh, the, 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 the social uh, problem uh, of tribes there. And uh, the, the government don't have the means, don't have the, the tools to face this, uh, this problem, which is one of the most critical and most the dangerous problems for our uh, economy. This is the main source for us to uh, have uh, devise. To, uh, to have a currency, for foreign, for foreign uh, currency. So th these are the problem. We have the problem of the strikes. We have the problem of people now. For example, in Tunis, uh, in 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 Tunis, uh, since 2011, we are producing less. But we are uh, for the salary, we are increasing the, 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 the salaries. How we do this? We go uh, uh, to have uh, emprunté, France? Emprunté, dead. Huh? 
we go to borrow from the uh, international institute, financial institute, institutes, not to product and to create uh, new jobs and to create thorough resources, but to to to, to better uh, to better uh, salaries. And no one from Nikem stop with this. No one from Nikem tell the uh, union of workers, the strongest uh, union of workers in terms of UGTT, stop. We cannot support Funti more. The speech made by most of politicians and most of uh, uh, the leaders of uh, the, the, the unions is not the speech of reason. But we, we try to, uh, to please to people. Instead of telling them, you know, this is not possible. We say, you are right and we will support your requests. We will support your, your, your demands. That's the problem. And that's why now we need a strong government able to uh, apply law. But uh, Tunisia has had a government which has had, uh, because it's a unity government, so it's had a lot of legislative uh, support. Uh, as Lisa Maria said, there has been, you know, some sort of reconciliation, and there has been uh, like a, a, um, a government that has had very large representation in the parliament, and still they haven't been able to implement uh, policies that that could improve the economy in Tunisia. Uh, also, um, you talked about earlier about um, the distrust of politicians. Yes. And I'm wondering if, if this is so somehow connected, uh, if you could talk a little bit about that, that there, there is some sort of, um, let's see, there's cooperation between parties that may not naturally be partners and then uh, you have a population that sees, uh, that don't see any or not enough improvement on, on, on the economic situation. Has that led to uh, some of the discontent that you see, for example, in the regions particularly? If you would like, you know, your opinion. Yes, yeah, just, just a comment, I think what you um, illustrate, <coughs> and it speaks partly to your question, Maria, is that, uh, and Tunisia is no different than most other countries that go into transition or that have informal um, economy or that have had either strong authoritarian or subsequent weak governments, is that there's this whole political economy, which is hard to understand. It serves its own purpose. And you described all these actors who have their own interests. And these interests may not be in the Tunisian people's interest, and they may not be in the government's interest, but it's in their interest. And as we know, with power, you hold on to it. You don't give it away voluntarily. You know, usually it's taken away, or you, you negotiate, or you trade. And what you describe is that across Tunisian society, <coughs> from businesses, businessmen to businesses, to labor organizations, uh, to other interest groups, they have interests which they're holding on to, and they're not willing to give them up. Yet the reforms that Tunisia needs to undertake means that you, you indeed have to give away some of these privileges and some away of this power. And as you say, the government has been too weak to do this. Uh, so yes, you know there may be a lot of protests against the, the austerity measures. Uh, it may seem unreasonable to raise taxes and take away social benefits. 
But at the same time, a responsible government has to do something about the situation. Um, and it's not, it doesn't have the labor organization, it doesn't necessarily even have the employer's organization, um, UGTT and UTICA on the same team. There isn't this sort of, there's a political coalition, but there isn't a societal coalition saying we're going to implement these reforms. So below the political level, everybody's kind of looking out for their own interests and they can easily mobilize people sometimes. Uh, even though it may not always be in their interest. So young people, for example, who don't have access to the job market, they can't get a government job. People who are in government, you know, they want to hold on to their job very much. They want to hold on to their pensions. They want to hold on to their benefits. And it's understandable. But that, at the same time, is denying this very young population access to these jobs uh, or access to what are sort of privileged positions. So I think the sort of political economy and a weak government means it's very hard to do these reforms. Uh, so even if you can legislate reforms, implementing them, you're going to get resistance. And you've seen this with the protests time and time again, is that if you try to do something too drastic, and it's not just Tunisia, you could look to France and other countries, there's a backlash. And then the government has to retreat, and they kind of have to do a, a halfway measure of their reforms. And that's the, the game that's been going on in Tunisia for um, since the revolution. So I think it's, it's very hard to actually implement and I'm not saying if the reforms are good or not. I'm just saying implementing the reforms is really difficult. Excuse me, Sama, but yeah. I'm vested, sorry. Vested. Could I give the word to her first? Thank you. Um, and also to say that, uh, yes, that the government had to make economical reforms, but they also had a lot of other stuff on their plate. So after they finished the constitution in 2014, uh, the next step was to, to make new laws that were in conformity with the constitution. And uh, like you know, when you write a constitution, you have to do two things. You have to make sure that your laws are actually in conformity; otherwise, they will be unconstitutional, and that will be a huge debate question, which is is in Tunisia today. Uh, and also, you need to to set down the a constitutional court. Um, and according to to the constitution, this was supposed to happen quite quite fast, uh, and it still hasn't happened. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, th they they managed to pass a, pass a law in 2015, I think it was, or was it last year? It's mm -hmm. yeah, not that far. Far, far away, um, and I think that well, I don't know the full uh, full picture of this, but but when I was in Tunisia doing my field work in 2015, I spoke to a lot of the politicians who were in the National Constituent Assembly, like they they wrote the constitution and they felt a huge ownership to this process because it was so uh, so it was a revolutionary moment, but it was also very they had to sacrifice a lot to be part of it. And they were, yeah, m many of them were very proud to to have been present in writing their own constitution. Uh, and some of them were also currently members of the of the parliament, uh, and what they said was that s some of the some of the conflict or, or one one divide in the parliament was actually not so much uh, well obviously party the parties as well, but it's also uh, between those who actually wrote the constitutions and ho those who didn't, uh, and and thi this goes to. Uh, the constitution has been criticized for being a bit vague on some points, and that it ca can be interpreted, and to some, uh, in some regards, being a bit contradictory. Uh, so, of course, the, the debate that followed, uh, the debate on which they would make their new laws, uh, would require a lot of debate and discussion. Uh, and then some arguments that came up was like, well, well we wrote it, we, kn we know what was actually intended by these laws. Uh, well, others said that, well, this has to be uh, for interpretation. <laughs> we have to discuss it anew. And, and I believe that that is also what has halted the process, in addition to, to of course, uh, political disagreements uh, within parties as well. Um. Can I just say one, one thing, too? Yes, I mean please. Just one on that, and, and 
to make the panel discussion a little bit interesting, to, to slightly disagree. I've agreed with everything you've said so far, but on the constitution process, I, I would actually say that, yes, you know, the constitution and the constitution process is not perfect, <coughs> but uh, by and large, the, the process in Tunisia has been tremendously successful, and it's, it's a very impressive constitution. And I think it ex if you talk about exceeding expectations, it's a constitution and a process that, process that exceeded expectations. And if you look to other countries, um, I think Tunisia got it exactly right in terms of the amount of time they spent. They spent more time than the Egyptians who sort of overnight wrote this constitution which had no legitimacy or, or really you know, support. And at the same time, they didn't, you know, in Nepal and some other countries, it's, it's 16, 17 years, and they're still debating the constitution, and they can't adopt it. Um, so I think, you know, they, they spent enough time on it, and it's not perfect, uh, but it has, as you said, a lot of ownership. It was, there was a constituent uh, assembly, uh, which was democratically elected with all parties. It even had, you know, a pretty uh, decent... Um, uh, female representation and secular, non-secular. I think they did a really good job and there will always be problems in terms of implementing it and as you said, uh, constitutionality of the, the law, etc. But on, in one area there, I, th I think Tunisia actually really got it right. Oh, I, I didn't see mean first. that I'm the constitution okay. was bad. No, yeah. I just said it's been criticized for being contradictory. Sure. But I don't really think so. But by and large. The, the most important thing for us now is that we have constitutions. Maybe it is not an excellent uh, constitution, but it's a good constitution. And we should work with, and we should respect it. The problem, though, uh, we are uh, not, I'm, I'm speaking about the members of, of uh, the, the, the parliament. Uh, till now, we don't have the uh, institutions created by uh, the uh, institution, created by this constitution. We don't have the uh, constitutional uh, court. We don't have the high authority of audiovi audiovisual. Till now, the constitutional authority, we don't have it. Uh, we don't have uh, the, the uh, uh, institution of a sustainable uh, development uh, till now. We are not... Uh, 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 giving enough importance, of course, in, in, the, in the parliament, uh, to make the new uh, laws. Now we are we are discussing in the parliament the new law of the local authority, and this was due to the pressure put by people because we have elections in in May, and it is not acceptable to go to local elections, and we don't have uh, the law. Uh, of uh, local authority ready uh, uh, yet. So, but the most important thing is that even though all these problems, but we are going forward. First. Second, we are, we are keeping the hope in our minds and in our hearts. And we are sure that we will, uh, we, we will succeed. Even though all, 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 all these uh, problems, we are sure that we will uh, succeed. Also the marginalized regions? Also the ma marginalized region. Why? My country is rich. We don't have petrol or gas as our uh, neighbors, really. But we have other natural resources. But we have also the main important resource, 
which is uh, the minds, which is uh, this, this uh, young people who are graduated from the university. And now you know the, the economy, uh, the, the most important economies now is uh, the, uh, the, the, the economies of uh, intelligence. Uh, we have a society in which uh, women have an important role, an important role, which is different from all the, uh, our neighbors in, uh, in the region. So we, we have uh, many opportunities, we, we have many strong uh, we have many strong pillars uh, that can help us to build the Tunisia in which we aspire, in which uh, like, like uh, we wanted. But I come back to say, I'm one of those who think, well, I'm independent, I don't belong to any party, but I think that uh, with our president now, Beji Qaid Sebsi, which is we consider uh, an sage. Sage. He's considered as a sage. We know that, uh, and of course, with uh, people in Tunisia who care on their uh, country and who are, uh, who accept to make uh, the, the sacrifices uh, to, uh, uh, to, to end this uh, crisis. I think that things will be uh, better. But in this transition, we need uh, uh, a strong, a powerful government. And if we succeed only one thing, one thing we, we succeeded, is to impose the rules of law. To apply law on everybody. I think that's the key of the success. Can we say one, one thing since we're being sort of optimistic <coughs> and, and success because we were before saying, you know, a lot of pessimistic things Very about short. it. Very short. One of Tunisia's strengths also, since you mentioned the, the, the constitution, <coughs> which um, I'm not sure many people are aware of, is that they, and again why I'm a big fan of the constitution, it, it found a very elegant way of dealing with the, the big question of Islam and democracy, and you know, you say rule of law. In its preamble, <coughs> it has a very elegant way of saying that you know, Tunisia is a Muslim Islamic country, uh, and this is our identity, but its laws, what follows the preambles, are not based on religion. These are sort of secular laws. And these are, you know, this was a huge question during the constitution process, and it's a big question in Tunisia. It's a big question for the region and, and society is, you know, the sort of secular versus religion. And again, there I think Tunisia has really, you know, you haven't solved it uh, completely, but at least from a constitutional perspective, you've, you've found a very workable solution which people agreed on uh, between the, the Islamic party and Nada uh, and the more secular parties. They agreed on this constitution, how to strike a balance between identity and religion and at the same time, secular laws. Yes. I, I uh, let's see, we, I would like to um, look a little bit more on the, on the uh, uh, effects of, of the Tunisian situation on the region and also uh, the regional influences on Tunisia. 
Uh, and then I would particularly uh, mention uh, the external intervention into Tunisia from foreign actors. If you would like to comment, I maybe, Lisa, could you come in? Yes. Um, so uh, when I've been looking at uh, international influence in Tunisia, it hasn't been, um, well, it's mainly been, been focusing on the uh, international efforts on transitional justice. So I'm not sure if you would like to, you to elaborate on that. Um, um, no. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a bit on the side, right? So you were thinking more uh, security. I was thinking more about a security yes. situation. Okay. Yeah. So, um, but also Tunisia in the region. And yes. Yeah, so I, I think uh, when I went to Tunisia that my first impression was uh, which region is Tunisia actually part of? Because <laughs> I think uh, from Western observers, uh, we often see Tunisia as the part of the MENA region, which is a bit strange, uh, like the Middle East and North Africa, we compile that as one. But if you talk to, to Tunisians, uh, I think that they, they see themselves uh, just as much a part of the Mediterranean region, for instance, so they look to Europe, or they, they see themselves as, as part of, of the Mediterranean What's it called? The basin rink? Sea, <laughs> yeah, yeah, the, the coastline. Um, so for just to, to take one example to exemplify it, uh, for instance, when you're talking about women's empowerment, we always uh, compare Tunisia with uh, the rest of the, like, with Arab countries and, and North Africa, and we say that Tunisia is best in the class. And if you talk to women activists in Tunisia, they say, well, that's grand, but we don't want to be compared with the rest of the Arab countries. We want to be compared with Europe or the Mediterranean countries, because that's who we want to compare ourselves to. And that's also the aspirational hope. Like we would rather be <laughs> the worst in, in the in the uh, like <laughs> the worst in the best class, <laughs> sort of, than best in the worst class. <laughs> May that, that be the reason why Tunisians are a little bit pessimistic about their own development? That could be. Uh, don't forget that uh, Tunisia, by its position, uh, geographic uh, position. Tunisia is Carthage. And when you say Carthage, you know from the history of Hannibal, etc. When you say from the Carthage, you say the Mediterranean. Mm. But Tunisian also is Al-Qairawan. Al-Qairawan, the first basis of Islam mm. in the Maghreb, in, on, in Africa, but also in Africa, in uh, the sub-Saharan uh, Africa. So that, that's why we have many roads, and we have many windows. We have windows opened towards the north, towards Europe. Uh, Italy is only at uh, uh, 80 kilometers from, uh, from uh, Tunisia. Don't forget that. Only 80 kilometers between Tunisia and between uh, Italy. But also Tunisia have a window uh, opened on the east, and also uh, on the west, the Maghreb, and on uh, uh, the, the, the south. That's about the, uh, of course, the aspiration. We, uh, since the 19th uh, century, with uh, Khairuddin and with all many uh, others who, uh, who, who tried to make changes in the society, in the institutions, and to try to, uh, 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 th they look to uh, the French and to the European m models, 
to moderate our uh, systems. So th that's why the Tunisia Fontenay case is a little bit uh, special, and this is mainly due to its uh, geographic uh, position. Okay, but how do uh, the situation in Tunisia affect the region? And also how does, because there's been a lot of talk about uh, foreign interventions in yes. different ways, and also, I mean, more concretely and specifically, um, different uh, Arab uh, governments have supported um, president, different, different kind of governments in Tunisia. Listen, first of all, we cannot speak about stability in Tunisia without stability in Libya. Without stability in Libya, we can't have stability in Tunisia. First, stability uh, in economy, uh, in security, in, in, every, in everything you think. We have good relationships with Algeria. And the main problem that we are facing together is the problem of terrorism. And uh, Algerians supported us economically, uh, mainly when we have this uh, problem of uh, uh, tourism. Uh, after the attacks from the Insusafni, etc., the uh, Algerians uh, come in Tunisia and saved the uh, Tunisian season. Season, touristic season. Now we have interferences. Interferences from many governments in the West, but also in the East. We have the Emirates intervention in uh, Tunisia, and we have also the Qatari intervention in Tunisia. And Tunisia from now is uh, the place, is uh, the place in which there is a confrontation uh, between the interests of the, uh, uh, those uh, Gulf uh, countries, uh, and the petrodollar is playing a very bad uh, role in this uh, problem. But what is important for us is uh, people are conscious about what's, uh, happened, what's happening. They know very well who are from the people in the political from the sphere who are linked to this party or to the other uh, party. Uh, and I think that uh, in the elections uh, they will uh, say uh, what they should say to these people. I think I, you, you mentioned initially that um, I wrote this chapter for a book called uh, uh, Rule of External Actors in the Arab Spring. <clears throat> I don't think it's any uh, bestseller on Amazon, but it is available in bookstores here, at least in Norway. And uh, the chapter I wrote on Tunisia very much addresses this question about the role of external actors. Um, and I think you've, you've mentioned many of these uh, factors, but just to give you uh, an illustration, I, I was in Tunis uh, the year after uh, 2012, it must have been, uh, marking the one year anniversary of uh, the revolution in the same way that we're now uh, just passing the anniversary in January. And at the government, the official uh, ceremony that the government had in place, it was very interesting to observe what uh, government representatives from other countries were there in Tunisia because, I'm sorry, this was two years after. On the one-year occasion, you had France, you had the United States, you had sort of all the, 
the, the Western powers that you know, were very celebratory for, for, uh, to Tunisia with what they'd accomplished. Two years later, <coughs> you had no high-level U.S. representative, you had no high-level French or EU representative, but you had all the Gulf states. So the entire first front row uh, was with your Emirati, with your you know, different princes, representatives of the Gulf states. Turkey was there. Uh, you had, it was very interesting to observe because all of a sudden there was a different actors who had had very little interest or very little role in Tunisia until after the revolution. And as I think you mentioned, and Maria also, is that this has been controversial in that there have been uh, some is known, some are perhaps allegations that uh, they've been financing, you know, Anada, the, some of the Gulf states, while the Saudis have been more interested in Nida Tunis, although ironically, Ben Ali is still in Saudi Arabia, and this has obviously strained relationships with Tunisia because there are questions about not just of Ben Ali, but his family and uh, funds that are supposed to be repatriated to Tunisia. But you have all these new actors who came with the revolution, and it's not entirely clear what their interests are. On the one hand, Tunisia needs its investments. So if the Qataris are willing to you know, invest $500 million in infrastructure, you can't say no to that. But along with that investment, is there something else they want? Is there a political interest? Uh, Turkey was at one point quite active. Uh, there's you know, the question about, will China enter the scene? Um, and this is a sort of geopolitical question also about how, and this can maybe, I, I don't know how much time we have left, but on the security front, I think this is where Tunisia has not played its cards right, meaning that from a security perspective, and this is the question about Tunisia in the region, is that a lot of countries uh, need Tunisia to stay stable. It needs Tunisia also to play a constructive role in Libya, uh, when it comes to everything from migration in the Sahel to the security situation uh, in its region, the fact that there are so many foreign jihadists from Tunisia. Yes. Uh, it has proportionally the highest number of jihadists um, in, in, after in the region after, after, yeah, after Saudi. And again, we, we know these numbers are not always that good, but we know also anecdotally from so many terrorist attacks that there's a, a Tunisian yes. uh, involved, um, sometimes as a terrorist, sometimes maybe mentally unstable. But... The point is that uh, Tunisia has a very important role. And there is an interest from the US, from the EU, from neighboring countries in involving Tunisia. I think Tunisia could have, by lending its support, if it is to a sort of US-NATO alliance, or if it's even supporting the Saudi uh, coalition that's in, in Yemen, I'm not saying that they should do that, but in giving support, they should get something back. If they play their cards right, they can get a lot more investment. It's a, it's a risky and difficult game to sort of play geopolitics. But Tunisia is in a different state than it was before the revolution. Uh, and I don't think they're necessarily getting enough back from they're trying to sort of be part of different teams and not be have allegiance with one part. But they should be more shrewd in getting investments and other things by giving their security support. Very short. Very short. I just want to draw the parallel back to what we're talking about, economical reforms. So all of this external influence obviously have an impact on, uh, like, it, it, it acts as a dispersion on different priorities. Obviously, foreign funding comes with different priorities, also when it comes to economic reform. And concerning that, so these are the questions that I wasn't able to flit in. Uh, I have a question for Joachim. Um, and it is concerning the the uh, authorities, uh, authority that... Uh, European creditors are imposing on Tunisia, if you think that has made uh, the economy worse and the democratic transitions, uh, transition more difficult. And also, if you would, if you would say that international entities um, 
have failed to use the momentum um, after their revolution in order to implement and support the uh, strengthening of institutions in Tunisia. Sorry. That was a mouthful. <laughs> yeah. I we probably want some questions from the audience. No, actually, we, we the have the okay, questions great. from the audience here. Uh, I'll, I'll be brief. Let me just the take the, the, the <laughs> first one. I, I think, you know, this is a... Uh, a question also for uh, Mr. Macron when he comes to Tunis this, um, or when he's in Tunis this week is, <coughs> Tunisia is going to have to ask for some debt alleviation because it's a, it's a huge problem. They basically borrowed money <coughs> uh, and they has not exactly, these investments have not led to growth where they can have a surplus in their budget they can pay back. I think something like 6% of the budget goes to service debt, half of it to, to France. That's not sustainable uh, for a country like Tunisia. It needs every dinar or dollar from its budget to go for social investments, economic uh, re reform. It needs, to, you know, not to be sending the money back out to pay its its creditors. So I, I think, you know, they need to negotiate some kind of deal of better terms or uh, alleviating some of the debt. I think also the the question of of trade, um, and this is the question of sort of. Tunisia is a middle-income country, so it's been very hard for countries like Norway or others who have an aid budget to justify big transfers or investments in Tunisia because it's not a least developed country. It doesn't fit the sort of development aid qualifications. Uh, but what Tunisia wants, obviously, is trade. It wants access to the, the EU market. It wants access to the, the, the markets in, in Norway through the EEA. <coughs> they need a better uh, trade agreement, but I'm not very optimistic because they don't have many... Uh, strengths to negotiate with now. Uh, we know on agriculture and other areas, the EU is not going to give them necessarily a good deal. Uh, so I think this this is a big challenge, the, the question of debt, credit, um, trade, and relations to uh, especially the EU. And I think it may actually push, as you've mentioned, Tunisia may be in a different direction. If it's east uh, or south, it may go to different regions because the Qataris and others do not have the same necessarily... Uh, payback terms that the, the EU has. Okay. I, th I, th I think so there's I'm sorry, another we solution. Need to, uh, we need to yeah. close, <laughs> close up. So um, on that positive note, uh, I'm wondering if you could say something about um, the future prospects for Tunisia and what is needed to uh, secure or ensure stability and, and peace in Tunisia in the future. I can be very brief. Uh, obviously, I don't have the, the magical solution. Um, but I do think that you're touching upon uh, the strong government uh, aspect of it. Obviously, that's very important to have a, a government able to, to act and apply laws uh, when they have made them. Uh, but I think also it's uh, important to decentralize the, the power, um, or not, not the power, but like decentralize the democracy, making, uh, you're talking about local elections. I think, uh, yeah. Empowering the region, uh, regions and uh, spreading the democra democracy uh, project uh, would also help with the discontent. Uh, maybe people feel closer to the politicians. That's like a SWADA answer, but but I think it's important. Um, but also, I think uh, you can touch upon it, like alleviation of debt uh, and maybe more importantly, like repatriation of funds that already belongs to Tunisia but has been removed from from the country. Uh, very important. Mrs. Yeah. Yes. I think uh, the first thing is uh, to change uh, the law of uh, elections uh, so that we have we can have representatives who are really representing uh, uh, people. 
because now we are using the system of lists. And when you have a list in which you have 27 uh, persons, generally people don't know who are them. So they will vote for symbols, for the symbol of Anahda, for the symbol of Yudabni Tunis, uh, uh, and they don't care who are in this uh, list. The problem we have them people who are not representative in uh, their uh, area, so they cannot convince people uh, of the uh, decisions that should be uh, taken, and they will not represent the requests of uh, people, but they will represent uh, the interests of their uh, parties. But isn't that the work of the parties, the, the task of the parties to actually inform people, like doing a proper campaign? I, I will give you uh, a small example. For example, in the northern suburb of uh, Tunis, my friend Joachim Funti were there and lived in La Marsa, one of the most beautiful Funti cities in, in uh, Tunis. We, we have uh, uh, seven delegations. And uh, for all this uh, region, uh, we, uh, parties should uh, present lists with seven candidates. So uh, maybe for the people in La Marsa know who is the candidate in the front from Timarsa, but people from the other delegations don't know who, uh, who is him. So they will not vote uh, for a person in which they uh, trust, and of course for his party, but they will vote for a person who they don't know. But if you will make uh, the choice uh, a representative for each delegation, so people of Carthage Will, uh, will choose uh, a representative from Funti Carthage. Then Carthage, uh, all people from Funti know uh, people from Funti there, so their uh, choice will be uh, better. But when you put seven names, people don't know from who are all these seven uh, uh, names. Of That's why you have party politics. Sorry? That's why you have party politics. Yes, but instead of having election on in this uh, area uh, for seven uh, seats, you'll have parties will be present in smaller front area, will individual from the candidates. For in Carthage, for example, you'll have the candidate of another, the candidate of uh, Nidatunes, the candidate of other uh, parties, and people will choose one of them. That's uh, uh, first, we should amend. So the electoral uh, law. Uh, second, we should uh, guarantee an atmosphere of work. Because one of the main problems now that in Tunisia we are not working enough. La devaluation. devaluation. But our, our, our problem, greatest problem, is the devaluation of our currency, of the uh, dinar. And of course, more the dinar is devaluated, more the service of uh, the rents uh, will, will, will be greater. So if we will consolidate the position of the uh, dinar by producing more, by working more, this will let the problem of this uh, rents heavier uh, for us and will allow us to uh, have funding to, uh, in all the, the different uh, fields. Uh, the other uh, things in which, on which I insist is the rules of law the application of law. 
Now, one of our problems is this feeling of uh, not arbitrary, but uh, that, that we can escape to uh, the problem of impunity. So we should put end this uh, feeling of uh, impunity by restoring the rules of law. Two, two points. Um, first, I think it's about managing expectations. The government has to be honest with the Tunisian people and say we're in a very difficult situation. It's no, not going to get much better tomorrow, maybe the day after, but we have to, where it's going to be a bumpy ride and we're going to have to make some concessions and we can only do it together. I think they really need to level with the Tunisian people rather than promising 7% growth in 2019 and say we can deliver this and that. They need to be honest and say we need to work together uh, and we need to be realistic. The second point is they, they need to play their cards right uh, internationally, as I was saying. Tunisia needs to appeal to the consciousness of countries that still want to support a democracy as a reward for having chosen a certain path and not having uh, gone down another path like Egypt and also not becoming instable, uh, unstable like uh, Libya. And they're going to have to say either, uh, to take a, a turn it around, say either you're with us or you're against us. If you're with us, we need your investments. <coughs> we need you to give us good trade deals. Uh, we need you to have a long-term interest in Tunisia, alleviate, uh, alleviate the debt. And I think they need to really play their cards and put the pressure on other uh, countries and say, we really need your support. Uh, and either, again, you know, you're with us or you're not with us and not have these sort of very vague uh, international agreements where somebody comes and say, we're going to do this or do that. They, they need to have a clear plan and hold other countries accountable in the same way that the citizens of Tunisia need to hold their government accountable to what they're promising. Just one point, please. Oh, Just one point. Very uh, about support, because it's necessary. We are proud because the Norway gave us the Nobel Prize for uh, peace. But it will be interesting. We know that uh, here in Norway there is uh, an important recruitment uh, of uh, employers from uh, outside. Maybe if the uh, Norwegian government will give the opportunity to 1,000 graduated Tunisian uh, doctors, uh, engineers, uh, in the high level of these specialties, which are, who, who are, whom are needed here to work from here, I think that will be the best message that you, uh, you are supporting democracy in Tunisia. To that I will say perhaps or inshallah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you.